Good morning, everyone. I hope you're feeling well. Some of you are, good. Uh, now, as you know, this year we've been looking at fundamental questions. We've been asking the question, why? You know, in the last uh, couple of weeks, we've had Brendan uh, talking about why Jesus? Sort of what are, what are the fundamental reasons that we, we follow him? What are the fundamental sort of truths behind uh, his uh, appearance for, for, for God sending him here to earth? So I thought I'd continue that uh, underpinning sort of fundamental question. And I'm going to ask the question this morning, why Easter? And you sort of think, well, that's an open-ended question. What does he mean? Do you mean, why do we have Easter eggs? Good question. Or what's the story with hot cross buns? I know those, some, of, some people's stomachs are rumbling already and you want to know. I'm sorry, that's not the part of it. Or something technical. Why is Easter on the first Sunday after the first full moon on or after the 21st of March? Because it is. Uh, that's, that's how they determine when Easter is. It's the first Sunday after the first full moon on or after the 21st of March. Don't ask me why, because I didn't research that. Um, and that, I guess, gives away that's not the question I'm asking this morning. Or just simply, why do Christians make such a big deal of Easter? Uh, that's not the question I want to ask either. They're, they're all interesting questions. They're all things we could look at. But I want to take it a step further back and ask the question, why did the events of Easter have to happen in the first place? I mean, think about it. We have an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God, or omnipotent, depending on how you like to pronounce that, who has created us in his image. He gives the power and responsibility to Adam and Eve to name everything, to rule over everything, and to be fruitful. And as part of that responsibility, guess what? He gives them the three T's, the ones we love, tests, trials, and temptation. And guess what? Anybody, anybody read the story? They stumble at the very first hurdle and they ruin everything for the rest of humanity. But God has a redemption plan that he puts into action which culminates in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection three days later, which is what we celebrate as Easter. Now this strategy of God's raises some interesting questions of its own. Why, for instance, I don't know whether you've asked this question, but I've always wondered, why did God enact such a long-term plan which ultimately cost him far more than it cost us? Why in his omnipotence didn't he just go with a do-over, a reset? Yeah, that's, a, that's really popular terminology at the moment. Why didn't he just do a, a reset? Now, we know he did that sort of thing with Noah and his family, but then promised never to do that again. And you think, well... We know why he promised never to do it again, because just like the idea of a global reset that people are having now, it didn't work. People are still the same. Even his chosen family, the family of Noah, managed to stuff up. Even though everybody else had been wiped out, they were left to start afresh. It didn't work out that way. And so he said, well, I'm not going down that road again. And so I believe there are, there are two reasons for this strategy. Well, I think there are a number of reasons, but there are two main reasons that I want to talk about this morning for us to consider as we come to our Easter celebrations on Good Friday this week. Because I believe that if we understand these reasons, that shapes how we as followers of Jesus are going to approach our services on Good Friday. The first reason stems from what I said earlier about Adam and Eve. 
Genesis 1.27 tells us that God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So unlike every other deity that mankind has conceived of, believed in, worshipped or prayed to, Almighty God did not create mankind as his playthings, but as stewards of his very good creation bearing his image. He's not a capricious God toying with us to demonstrate his power over us, and he doesn't torment us because we don't obey his orders. I don't know whether you've read any Greek mythology or the mythology of other religions, but you look at the gods that they've conceived of, and basically they're just more powerful, naughtier versions of humans. I mean, they're not particularly people, especially if you take Greek mythology as an example, the gods are more morally bankrupt than the human beings they're supposed to serve. And we, you can tell that, that the things that people worship don't have a, a, a basis in, in reality, don't have something solid and concrete that they can create a, a moral good life around. But Almighty God is not like that. He's not capricious. He doesn't toy with people. He's not a distant God either. We, I mean, there are plenty of religions who have a lot of good religious writing about a God who many eons ago once created the earth and then left everybody to fend for themselves. Uh, unless you don't do the right thing, in which he comes down like a thunderbolt and is pretty nasty. Uh, but our God, Almighty God, is not a distant God who's given us a set of ancient rules that we have to follow to achieve hmm, enlightenment. No, it didn't work. His desire to demonstrate his steadfast character and to encourage us to take on that character in our own lives is a consistent thread throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. So do not be attracted by strange new ideas. Has anybody noticed that the world is full of strange new ideas? Some of them aren't that new, but most of them are pretty strange. Your strength comes from God's grace. Notice it doesn't say your strength comes from God's law, from God's rule, from God's power. Your strength comes from God's grace, not from rules about food which don't help those who follow them. Now, I don't know whether I should have picked a scripture that mentioned food because that's a pretty radical topic at the moment. But rules about anything that aren't to do with God don't help those who follow them. And so we've got a, a, an idea here of what God plans for us. His plan is to reconcile the holy, himself, to the unholy, us, and it points to the commitment of God's character to bring his children into a relationship with him that could transcend the limitations that our sin imposes on how close we can get to God. And to do this required bridging that gap with the blood of his son Jesus. Now the theological explanation of why that's the case is fascinating. And I'm sure you'd love me to tell you all about it. But that's a message all on its own and I might save that till the week after next. Or not. Um, so I'm not going to go down that road this morning, but the basic premise here is that God's desire is that we not only take, we not only trust His character, but we take His characteristics into our own lives, and His redemptive plan has given and continues to give mankind every opportunity to do just that. Are you with me here? Does that, does that, is that a good reason for God to have actually given us a bit of time to get our act together? 
No, you've all got your act together. Well, that's great. The second reason for God's strategy is as a demonstration. We know that from reading the New Testament that Jesus modeled the behavior that he wanted his followers to emulate. He didn't just tell people what to do. He showed people what he expected of them. And he actually didn't put anybody through something he wasn't prepared to be put through himself. Uh, even you know, John 3.16 is a scripture that shows God modeling love to the whole of creation. For this is how God loved the world. Now, there's no beating around the bush here. It actually says, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. At the Passover feast, Jesus purposefully, clearly and plainly set an example for his disciples to follow when he washed their feet. And, and, and this was something that, that surprised them. I mean, he, he stripped down to his jocks, put a towel around his waist, got a basin of water and went round and washed their feet. They were, they were a little startled and taken aback. But he says in John 13, 14, And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. So Jesus is being very clear about the fact that the example that he sets, he expects us to follow that example and do what he has done for us to others. So this whole idea of being a demonstration, modeling what he expects us to be like, is throughout Jesus' ministry. Easter is an example of Jesus modeling the concept of love as an example for us to follow. The confounding thing is that it doesn't match our image of love. And it certainly doesn't match or conform to the secular world's current social, political and cultural definition of love. John 15.10 says, When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. That sounds a bit hardcore, doesn't it? Just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that you'll be filled with my joy. Who likes following commandments? Who gets filled with joy when they do them? Come on, we've got to learn something here. It says, I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. It says, yes, your joy will overflow. I think he's serious here. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I've loved you. Now, he doesn't leave it there with the disciples wondering, what do he mean? What does he mean by this statement? Well, how are we supposed to love people? He actually goes on to describe exactly what he means by foreshadowing his imminent crucifixion. In verse 13, he says, There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for your friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And he actually goes on to talk about the, the transition that we make from slaves to friends, from just obedient servants of Almighty God to actually friends of Jesus. But friendship comes with a price. He says there is no greater life, love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And this is a fairly uncomfortable expression of love for our modern cultural sensitivities. Uh, it's incredibly personal and intimate in its execution. I mean, Jesus goes from disciples washing each other's feet to laying down their lives for one another, which is clearly a reference to how we are to treat each other as members 
of the body of Christ, as friends of Jesus. But are these the only people that we should regard as friends and treat accordingly? I think it's very unlikely, as Jesus was often described or even accused of being a friend to sinners. And so the people we're called to express the love of God to are our family, our friends, our work colleagues, sporting teammates, acquaintances, indeed everyone who is in our circle of influence, whether they are a follower of Jesus or not. Now, I know what you're thinking. Most of these people would not be the first names to spring to mind if we were asked who we would lay our life down for. In fact, many of them probably wouldn't even make the list if we, if we started making a list. Because, you see, these days it's far easier to be passionate about a cause rather than individuals. It's easy to divide people into categories and suppress their individuality in the mob. We judge them and divide them on their views. Are they pro-life or pro-choice? Are they for or against the COVID vaccine? Are they for or against same-sex marriage? Are they pro or anti-Trump? I mean, who cares? But um, ah, Are they chemtrail or vapour trail proponents? Ooh, important stuff. What are their views on Me Too? What, are the, what do they think about Black Lives Matter? Do they believe the Earth is flat and that the moon landings are a hoax? We'll speak to you later, David. Now, as Christians, I mean, uh, they're all questions of varying importance, but of often quite divisive content. When we get involved in those things, what, what often happens is that we, we divide people's opinions on the basis of people who agree with us are nice people and people who disagree with us are a mob of raving lunatics. Now notice the change in language. We personally align ourselves with people who agree with us but we put people who disagree with us into a box and we call them a mob. And that's, even as Christians it's become fashionable to take a side in these types of debates in the name of all that's holy. And to point out the logical, ethical and moral shortcomings of those with an opposing viewpoint. Now hear me carefully here. It is great for us as Christians to stand up for what we believe is right. And to strive to live as Christ commands. It's an excellent thing to take up a cause that you believe in. But not if it obscures the love of God in your life. The way that happens is when we stop seeing people as individuals and instead see a group, a mob, an army, a faceless crowd opposing the righteous believers. And we're warned against this sort of thinking in Ephesians. Because in chapter 6 verse 12 it says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. We need to be people driven, no, sorry, we need to be people driven rather than cause driven. People determine what they believe through how we behave. They also understand what we believe, not through what we say we believe, but through how we act. If we tell them what we stand for, if they don't see it in our lives, they don't actually believe that that's what we stand for. There's a famous story of Billy Graham playing golf. 
and he played it with a, a, a well-known professional. It was one of those pro-am things, I think. It was a well-known professional golfer, and he was in a, in a tournament, and he played a foursome with uh, ex-president Gerald Ford, uh, Jack Nicholas. Uh, uh, this, is, uh, this is dating me, I can tell. Um, uh, he, he's a famous golfer, for those of you who don't know. Um, and Billy Graham. And after the round was over, one of the other pros uh, approached him and asked, hey, what was it like playing with the president and Billy Graham? And the, the golf pro said with his disgust, I do not need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. And he grabbed his uh, clubs and he headed for the practice tee and he smacked a bucket of golf balls because he just was so ticked. And uh, his friend followed him out there and he said, was, uh, was Billy Graham a little rough on you out there? And the pro sighed and said with embarrassment, well, no, he said he, he didn't even mention religion. And... The thing was that Billy Graham had said nothing about God, Jesus or religion and yet that golf pro had stomped away after the game accusing Billy of trying to ram religion down his throat. So what had happened? And it was simply this, the evangelist had so reflected Christ-likeness that his presence brought the same feeling to the pro as experienced by what's described in Isaiah. He knew he was a lost man of unclean lips and living among people of unclean lips. And the life of Billy Graham, that lost golf pro, had sensed the presence of a holy God. Now I know, you know most of us sort of think, well, I'm not quite in Billy Graham's league. I've never had anybody sort of go, whoa, hey, I sense the presence of God on you when you walk into work or um, anything like this. But we carry that presence in some degree and our actions will determine how much people see that in our lives and so there you have it we celebrate Easter because it's the culmination of God's redemptive plan for mankind and he has given us the ability to accept the salvation God offers us through faith in his son Jesus Christ and because it's the clearest example of how we are to show the love of Jesus to those people who are a part of God's family and those people who are yet to be a part of God's family. So this morning, I want to leave you with two questions. Who would prefer I left you with two answers? Because questions mean you have to do something. The first question is it's obvious that the idea of salvation is important in this redemptive plan that God has. And so what I want to ask you this morning is, do you want to accept God's offer of salvation this morning? John 6.40 says, For it's my Father's will that all who see His Son and believe in Him should have eternal life. I will raise them up on the last day. If you've never declared your belief in Jesus Christ and your desire to make Him the Lord of your life, or you know that you need to reaffirm that belief, I'd love to pray a prayer with you at the end of the service, just to ask Jesus into your heart for the first time or, or once again. If that's you here this morning, could I, could I just for, the, for a brief moment ask everybody to close their eyes? If that is you here, you're here in person this morning, and you want to actually make that decision. You want to pray a prayer to connect with Jesus Christ and make him the Lord of your life. I'd love to pray with you after the service, but I'd, 
I'd like to know who you are first. So while nobody's looking around, if that's you, could you raise your hand so that I know that I can come and pray with you after the service? Thank you. I see that hand. I'll come and speak to you as soon as this service is finished and we'll pray a prayer together. If you're online and you wish to pray that prayer, please press the raise hand button in the chat and a member of our team will pray with you privately. Now we've found a new revelation on the awesome message of Easter and how pivotal it is to our salvation. You can open your eyes now, by the way. Sorry. You you were enjoying that, weren't you? Some of you had already nodded off. (laughs) And we've seen how pivotal it is to our salvation and the actual outworking of the love that Jesus modelled through his life on earth. So my second question is, how are you going to get people in front of the Easter message on Good Friday? Because, hey, we've just found out that we have the greatest opportunity in living memory, or at least since 2019, to actually share the message of Easter with family, friends, neighbours, workmates, and even total strangers. There are two services on Good Friday, one at 10.30am and one at 6pm. And the great thing is that the restrictions have been lifted so that we can have 75% capacity without having to wear masks. 75% capacity in this auditorium is 101 people. So we've got two services. That means that we need to fit 202 people on Good Friday. So you've got less than a week to find friends, neighbours, family, workmates, or even total strangers and bring them along. Um, I mean, you can come to the morning service and invite people with kids along because C3 Kids will be in full swing because it's going to be more of a family-focused service. Now, you might be on the team in the morning, but you want to invite people along, you can invite them to the 6pm service. You might know people who like to sleep in. They obviously don't have kids if they can sleep in. So bring them along to the evening service. Be a slightly different vibe for the evening services. Uh, If you've ever been around when there's two services offered every Sunday, the evening service always has a special touch to it possibly brought about the fact that there are no kids um, <laughs> but just I, I have no but no evidence for that so but uh, both services will be fabulous but as I said we have a uh, an uncommon opportunity that we can invite people now without fear of COVID restrictions without fear of going over limits um, and so it's a great opportunity just to get people in front of the message of Easter. We're going to have uh, a special service. It's going to be in the round. It's not going to be up here on stage. We're going to have it down on the floor and we're going to actually have a semi-circular sort of informal, intimate, um, Wren Collective fireside. Actually, no, there won't be any fires. Um, But it's going to be a different sort of service, but it's going to be very intimate and personal. Um, And so I just encourage you, get people along to that. That may, that may seem like a shameless plug for our Good Friday services, and it is, um, but remember what is at stake here. People aren't looking at what we tell them. They're searching for evidence of the reality of our faith in God. And first of all, they want to see that. They want to see if we're for real, and then they want to see if God is real for themselves. There is no greater love 
than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now they're Jesus' words, not mine. But when we think on that, it makes inviting people to Easter a walk in the park. I look forward to seeing you all next week. Thanks, Ashley.